so welcome back this evening. This is still the Aging, Dying, and Awakening Retreat. And um, just a bit of a recap of what has happened prior to my sitting in this seat is um, Anna began the retreat talking about the hindrances. And we were asked, what do we claim is ours and what makes us realize things are actually not ours? It was one of our first exercises. And, and um, she also uh, completely erased us. Remember that? And um, then Eugene, he, um, we listened to him talk about decomposing body parts. It was pretty gross. And then he suggested that we get in harmony with this truth. It's been interesting. It's been very interesting. I'm really glad you're back, actually. <laughs> you know. So where are we now? I said the name of this retreat is Aging, Dying, and Awakening. And I'm going to touch on each of those. Um, and when I think of um, aging, dying, and awakening, and I think of what is the Buddha called the three characteristics of, of, of life, is, um, which is impermanence and the suffering, which is also dukkha. Some, I think we, we've been using lingo that people may not understand. <clears throat> and that is that dukkha is the same word for um, when we say suffering. So aging um, as impermanence. And dying is how we, a lot of dukkha around that. And awakening is the other characteristic of anatta, which is the, the not-self. Getting to the place of understanding all of this is when we get to awakening. So I'm going to kind of look at it like that, kind of. So beginning with um, aging and impermanence. So I think all of us are over 50 years old, right, in this room. And um, I remember someone asked the other day about joy. Like, you know, where's the joy in all of this? And so we were actually back in the teacher's room one day and we started talking about the film Woodstock that's out right now. And um, some of you may remember Woodstock. <laughs> and that led into a discussion about music. And I'm going to tell you, this is what I think. This is what I know, is that we experienced the best music ever at this age, right? We experienced the best music ever. I mean, I, I think about music now, and I, I don't know what people are listening to, but I actually had a chance to see Jimi Hendrix. I saw Joe Cocker and Mad Dogs and Englishman. I saw The Three Dog Night. I saw Crosby, Stills, Nash, Janis Joplin, Big Brother and the Holding Company. Remember all this? Sly and the Family Stone, I saw Diana Ross and the Supremes, James Brown three times. That was music. And that is one of the biggest joys, I think, of this age, is that we still have, we have that music in our souls. And um, I think that that's real important. That's a real important part of who I am. I ended up working in the music industry, and um, music has just been a central part of my life. And 
I'm very grateful that I am the age that I am, that I had a chance to see those artists. Wouldn't you say that's a pretty good joy of, of, of our age, right? That's pretty good. So, but where is it all gone? Where is it all gone? So I um, looked up the definition of aging in the dictionary online, of course. Nobody has a real dictionary anymore. And the process, it said the process of change. Aging is the process of change in the properties of a material occurring over a period of time, either spontaneously or through deliberate action. So it's a process of change over time or the process of growing old, or reaching the end of useful life, a blessings. So aging and time have this relationship, aging and time, this process plus change and time, right? Has to do with aging. And so it's a process. Aging is a process. And we are, as human beings, as beings on the planet, we are also constantly aging from our first breath. From our first breath, we start aging. And so we humans are really also a process, when you think about it. We are a process. So life is this process. And as Eugene so um, rightly pointed out, that it's not static, right? There's nothing static. So we are actually this process within a process. Human beings are, we live, our bodies, our life, we are a process within the bigger process. And so we have this thing that we call time that we look at sequentially, like it's, like it's linear. And there's a lot of debate around whether it's linear or not, but that's how we accept it in life, that one thing happens and then the next thing happens in order. And in, in this tradition, we talk about causes and conditions. And causes and conditions are also have to do with that, how something precedes something else in order for it to be. So that it's conditioned upon something, like the, the oak tree is conditioned on, you know, it's because of the, the acorn, right? The acorn comes in the, the oak tree, the tomato seed and the tomato plant, um, the sound of my voice, is contacting you right now and causing you to hear. The light and image is also contacting your eyes and allowing you to see. And so this, all this, the whole phenomena, all the phenomena that we have, that we call life, everything, is a part of conditioned reality. Because it's conditioned upon something. Nothing just pops out of nowhere, really. And so the main condition of conditioned reality is that it changes, right? So all conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are impermanent. And so we humans are a part of that, right? We're a part of that process. We are also a part of, we've been talking about the elements. I love the way, I, I think, a lot since I've learned this in, in, in this study of this body, the elemental earth, how much of the elements we are, right? 
and that we're subject to the causes and conditions, just like all elements, how elements change, like earth element, our bones being the earth element, and it's just an example of the earth element, our bones, and the fire element, the digestion in our bellies, or that fire element, and the water element, all the fluids, right? All the fluids in our body are the water element, and of course our breath is the air element. And it's just really interesting to think of yourself as elemental and really connecting with we are the earth walking, really, with consciousness. And it's really a beautiful thing to really be able to understand ourselves as that and, and the parts that, and, and how that, how that unfolds in life. And so I, I do, I think of myself as elemental. And, uh, and it's really another view that loosens up things a bit. It's not so, so stuck. So everything is in constant change, in constant transformation, right? And when we're young, we actually look forward to this change, to this change of getting older. Gosh, I remember I couldn't wait to be able to be legal to drive a car. I was driving the car already, but I was really, you know, on the back streets. I wanted to get on the main street. And, you know, being older was something that you really looked forward to. And then when you get older, it's kind of, you have a different relationship with getting older. Um, mostly, often we resist it. I have um, a beautiful group of, of, of um, friends. There's six of us. We grew up together since we were 12. And I literally just got a text from them moments ago. <laughs> we're on a, a, a text together. And we still hang out. We meet. We're spread all over uh, California. But we meet once a year. And I can't even tell you how much fun we have. It is someone that's known you since you were 12. We go back into the same roles we had back then. It's, it's unbelievable. And we're, you know, old ladies. And it's really, we're now at a point where the last text I got is like, you know, I think we need to do this twice a year. And now there's like, there's more of this urgency around, we don't want to waste time. You know, we have so much fun. Why not do it twice a year? And so we are really aware because some of our friends also have passed. You know, some of our friends that we grew up have passed. And so we're at this place of wanting to hang out more. And I, and I love it, but, there's, but it has to do with our aging. And we haven't said those words, but that's what's underneath it. That's what's underneath this wanting to be together. And the love, you know, there's a lot of love there. I lo really love these women. But mainly we resist aging and what comes with aging especially. We wish it were different. You know, things are going in the wrong direction. Like suddenly my toenails are going another direction. It's like, what's that about? You know, that toenails start to turn. And um, we were talking about, you know, one of us who I won't name, but our feet are getting bigger and wider. And as we get older, um, you know, it's like some of these changes are really strange. It's like, why is that happening? And so I, it's funny because I have this, um, a friend of mine gave me this card, and I love it. I have it up on my mirror. 
and um, it's it's an image of the Buddha sitting in lotus position, you know, and Buddha's a big, big guy sitting in lotus position, and there's this thought bubble, and this thought bubble says, I hate my thighs. <laughs> I mean, right? It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when we look at the body, <laughs> I know, right? Again, he's got a giggle over there. It's very funny. Every time I see it, I've had it for years. And the human body, you know, is constantly changing. It is nothing but process. And some of the things that are true about our body is that the skin cells are replaced every 39 days. Our skin cells are replaced. Every, so right now, your skin cells are doing something. The liver cells are replaced every 300 to 500 days. Your liver. Your skeleton is replaced every 10 years. Imagine that. Our red blood cells, every 120 days, our red blood cells change out. And the fat storage cells are replaced every 10 years. Now, those can move a little quicker. But we are actually a part of this evolutionary impulse of the entire cosmos that is transforming and changing and expanding and becoming. Eugene talked about becoming. There's a um, Neil um, deGrasse Tyson. He's an African-American astrophysicist. He says, we are part of this universe. We are in this universe. But perhaps more important than both of those facts is that the universe is in us. And I looked it up, and when we were talking the other day, that 13.8 billion years ago is when the Big Bang happened. 13.8 billion years. It says the hydrogen started to form stars and galaxies, and after billions of years, the Earth and us, we were formed from atoms made from inside of stars, right? Every atom in your body was made by a star at some point in the last 13.8 billion years. And in all that time, the universe has continued to move and change and expand. And 4.5 billion years ago was the evolution of our solar system. 4.5 billion years ago. If we could only understand our lives from this perspective, the great, the bigger picture, there's something really amazing, really amazing about that and who we are and who we are in relationship to all of this how deeply interconnected we actually are to each other, to all life. It's incredible to think about. It's so big, it's hard to even think about it. But we mostly live our lives with this lens of being separate and small and personal. Right? It's my world. It's my life. And that dukkha that you experience is your own. Like, this is my suffering. This is what's happening to me. And on the relative plane, it is. That is. On, there's 
right? We've talked about there being a relative plane and a universal plane. On the relative plane, every, that is your stuff. And on a universal plane, actually, we share everything. We share everything. We're sharing the same air. Our breath is the same breath of a dinosaur. Same breath. So old age, sickness, and death happens to all of us. So the question is, how can we learn to approach it with wisdom? Something that is just going to happen. Something that is always happening, will always happen, as far as we know. How can we approach it with wisdom? So I'm going to um, I'm going to be reading from a a um, a work by one of our teachers' teachers, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon. If you know all these people, um, this tradition where spirit rock comes from, their teacher. Um, one of their main teachers was a Thai forest monk and master by the name of Ajahn Chah. And I think um, he was mentioned earlier this, this week. And Ajahn Chah, he actually um, gave a talk to a lay person, meaning that they were not a monastic. It was a woman who was a grandmother who was sick and dying. She was lying in her deathbed and he was summoned and he gave this talk to her and it was translated um, into English. And so I'm going to go in and out of this talk. Okay, so we're going to imagine yourselves as this person who's lying in your deathbed and you had the good fortune to have Ajahn Chah come to you and speak to you. What a gift. So imagine this, that you are in that position, and Ajahn Chah has come to speak to you, okay? Namo tasa vagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Homage to the blessed one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. So this is Ajahn Chah speaking to you now. This body of yours, lying here and decaying, is the truth of the Dhamma. This truth is a teaching of the Buddha that's certain and sure. He taught us to look at it, to contemplate it, to accept what's happening. And it's something you should accept, regardless of what's happening. Just look at your breath. It goes out, and then it goes in. It goes in, and then it goes out. That's the nature of breath. It has to be that way. It has to change, to go back and forth. The affairs of fabrication, and fabrication, he uses that word a lot, fabrication, it's actually phenomena, you know, the world as we know it. The affairs of fabrication depend on change. You can't have them not change. Just look at your breath. Can you keep it from coming in? Does it feel comfortable? If you draw in a breath and then don't let it go out, Is that any good? Even if you want it to be constant, it can't be constant. It's impossible. It goes out and then it comes in. It comes in and then it goes out. It's such a normal thing. We're born, we're born and then we age. 
We age and then we get sick and die. It's so normal. But we don't like it. It's as if we wanted the breath to come in and not go out or to go out and not come in. When it comes in and out and out and in, that's how we live. So that's a part of what he said to this woman lying. And it brings to mind for me, because I'm going in and out of, of his, his talking, it brings to mind um, the story, the parable of the mustard seed. Some of you probably know it, the parable of the mustard seed. It's such a classic story, and it just represents so much. So it's a famous parable of a woman named Kisa Gotami, and her only son dies very young. And she's beside herself with grief, just beside herself. And it's just not fair that he dies so young and, and she just can't accept his death. And she's carrying him around, the, the dead son. And someone suggests that she goes to the Buddha and that maybe he can help her. So she carries her dead son to the Buddha and, and begged him to give her medicine to bring him back to life. And the Buddha says this to her. Go enter the city. Make the rounds of the entire city, beginning at the beginning. And, with, and whatever house no one has died, from that house, fetch tiny grains of mustard seed. And bring that back to me. So she desperately went out from house to house and trying to find out and do what she was told to do. But to her disappointment, she couldn't find a single house, not a single family that hadn't suffered from death from a family member. People told her, the living are few, but the dead are many. So after hours of going from house to house to house to house to house and door to door to door and not finding a single soul that had not been touched by death, she came to the realization that death is universal. It isn't personal after all. And according to the story, she said, this indeed is what is true, impermanence. And with this new understanding, her grief calmed down and she buried her son. And the Buddha is said to have said to her, all living beings are of such a nature that they must die, whether they reach old age or not. That story is such a classic story of how we want it to be different. Now back to Ajahn Chah. You're back in your dying bed. He says, letting go means that he put things down. Don't carry them around. Don't weigh yourself down. Accept the truth about the fabrications of the body, whatever they may be. You relied on them since you were born, but now it's enough. Now that, you're, now that they're old, they're like the utensils in your home, the cups, the saucers, and the plates that you've held onto all these years. When you first got them, they were bright and clean, but now they're wearing out. Some of them are broken, 
Some of them are lost, while the ones remaining have all changed. They haven't stayed the same. That's just the way things are. And the same holds true with parts of your body, he says. From the time of birth and on through your childhood and youth, they kept changing. Now they're called old. So accept the fact. No matter how much you want this body to stay stable and permanent, it can't be that way. It's just the way it is. The Buddha called it a fabrication. The Buddha taught that fabrications aren't us. They aren't ours. And whether they're inside or outside of the body, they keep changing in this way. Contemplate this until it's clear. Fabrications, they aren't us, they aren't ours, whether they're inside the body or out. Now, Grandma, set your heart on listening respectfully to the Dhamma, which is the teaching of the Buddha. While I'm teaching you the Dhamma, be as attentive as if the Buddha himself were sitting right in front of you. Close your eyes and set your heart on making your mind one. Bring the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha into your heart as a way of showing the Buddha respect. Today, I haven't brought you a gift of any substance aside from the Dhamma. This is my last gift to you, so please accept it. You should understand that even the Buddha, with all of his virtues and perfections, couldn't avoid the weakening that comes with aging. When he reached the age you are, he let go. He let go of the fabrications of life. So for me, the key takeaways of those passages, that no matter how much you want this body to stay stable and permanent, or any phenomena for that matter, it can't. That's just the way it is. What the Buddha called fabrication that they're not us, they're not ours, whether they're inside the body or outside of the body. So our exercise the other afternoon with the question, what do you claim is yours, actually wasn't a trick question. Right? It's not ours. The affairs of fabrication depend upon change. You can't have them not change. So that's our lesson on impermanence and aging. So now I'm going to move into dying and equating it with some of the dukkha that we experience. So one of the things about me, I'm known to to quote lyrics because I'm a music person, right? And I always quote lyrics or sing a song or something in my Dharma talks often. Not always, but often. But I got one tonight. And so I was thinking about this song, just came to me. It's called And When I Die. You all remember this? My troubles are many, they're as deep as a well. Well, that's dukkha, right? I can swear there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell. 
Swear there ain't no heaven and pray there ain't no hell. But I'll never know by living, only my dying will tell. And then the second verse is, Give me my freedom for as long as I be. All I ask of living is to have no chains on me. Really wanting to get rid of dukkha, right? All I ask of living is to have no chains on me. And all I ask of dying is to go naturally. And when I die and when I'm gone, there'll be one child born and a world to carry on, to carry on. You all remember that? You remember who wrote that song? Who? Yes. Most people think it was blood, sweat, and tears. It was Laura Nero. Exactly. Yeah, that song was just a big song. I mean, and when I die, right? Really? Talking about dukkha. So, I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved her. I had every album of hers. So I looked up the definition of dying, and um, it says, gradually ceasing to exist or function in decline and about to disappear. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) In other words, what rises also passes away. Right? Back to Ajahn Chah. You're back in your beds, Grandma. Okay? He's talking to you. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhasa. So when the body wears out with age, accept it. But make sure that it's only the body that's wearing out. Make sure that the affairs of the mind are something else entirely. This gives your mind energy and strength because you see into the Dhamma that this is the way things are. This is the way they have to be. As the Buddha taught, that this is the way the body and mind are of their own accord. They can't be any other way. As soon as the body is born, it begins to age. As it ages, it gets sick. After it's sick, it dies. This truth is so, this truth is so true. This truth you're encountering today is the truth of the Dhamma. Look at it with your discernment so that you can see. It's kind of funny, you know, we human beings, when somebody dies, get all sad and upset. We cry and grieve, all kinds of things. It's delusion. It's delusion, you know, to cry and lament when somebody dies. That's the way we've been since who knows when. We hardly ever reflect to see things clearly. In my opinion, and you'll have to forgive me for saying this, but if you're going to cry when somebody dies, it'd be better to cry when somebody's born. But we have things all backwards. If somebody's born, we laugh. We're happy and glad. But really, birth is death, and death is birth. The beginning is the end, and the end is the beginning. When someone dies or is about to die, we cry. If you're going to cry, it'd be better to cry from the very beginning. For birth is death. Without birth, there's no death. Do you understand? Birth is death. And death is birth. 
So back to the story of Kisa Gotami and all the distress that she went through with her son. Today we know that there's no magic pill that can bring somebody back to life. And of course we know that everyone's going to die. But the human mind still inclines towards disbelieving impermanence. Titnat Han says, it is not impermanence that makes us suffer. What makes us suffer is wanting things to be permanent when they are not. So we want to make things permanent, like this relationship that shouldn't go away, that we're suffering behind a relationship. Or this job shouldn't go away. Or this child going off to college. I have a good friend who's, oh my gosh, Jarrett is going to college. And her whole life is surrounded by this young man, her only son. And she is really suffering, letting him go. And for me, my own suffering is around my own family because I, I, I actually had the fortune to come from an incredible, 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 incredible loving family. And we just had so much fun together. And my sister and I are the only ones left. Everyone else has, has died. And it's like there's times when I think about, there's moments when I really miss them and I think I would give anything to go back to just one day of fun. And it was always Thanksgiving. I have this image of Thanksgiving at, at our mom's house. And everybody's home, and there's food, and there's music, and there's dancing, and there's cards and games. And, oh, man, you know, it was just wonderful. That's my holding. And, and there's times when I just sit and... And, and I'll cry and be sad about it, that it's gone. And I said, it's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. But when we cling to what is transient, it's, it just brings up so much unpleasantness. And these are choices that we make. These are choices. We choose we can choose wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. So I want to continue with Ajahn Chah's letter. So you're back on your bed, okay, everybody? You're back? Okay. Now imagine he's really saying this to you. If you think that you'd like to keep on living a long time, it makes you suffer. If you think that you'd like to die right now and get it all over with, that's not the right way either, you know. It makes you suffer too, because fabrications aren't yours. You can't fix them up. They're just the way they are. You can fix them up a little bit, as when you fix up the body to make it look pretty or clean, or like children when they paint their lips and let their nails grow long to make them look pretty. But that's all there is to it. When they get old, they all end up in the same bucket. <laughs> He actually said bucket. <laughs> That's the way it was translated. They fix up the outside, but can't really fix things. That's the way it was with fabrications. The only thing you can fix is your heart and mind. Let go of everything, leaving just this singular awareness. But don't get deluded, okay? Don't lose track. If a vision or a voice arises in the mind, let it go. Leave it be. You don't need to take hold of anything at all. Just take hold of the awareness. 
Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the past. Stay right here. Ultimately, you get so that you can't say that you're going forward. You can't say that you're going back. You can't say that you're even staying in place. There's nothing to be attached to. Why? Because there's no self there. No you, no yours. It's all gone. This is the Buddha's teaching. He tells us to be all gone in this way. He doesn't have us grab hold of anything. He has us, he has us beware, be aware like this, aware and letting go. This is your duty right now, yours alone. Try to enter into the Dhamma in this way. This is the path for gaining release from the round of wandering on. Try to let it go. To understand, to set your heart on investigating this. And he goes on and talks about your children and your grandchildren and that don't worry about them. Right now they're fine, and in the future they'll just be like this, like you are right now. Nobody stays in the world. Everybody in the world has to be this way. So don't worry. Don't fasten on to things. What's the world? The world is our preoccupation that gets you stirred up, that disturbs you right now. How is this person doing? How is that person doing? Who will look after them when I die? All of this is the world. Whatever we think, fear of death, fear of aging, fear of illness, whatever the fear, it's all world. Drop the world. It's just world. That's the way the world is. If it arises in the mind, make yourself understand. The world is nothing but a preoccupation. Preoccupations obscure the mind so that it can't see itself. So moving on to awakening. And as we awaken, the idea of awakening is we're letting go of ignorance and waking up to the wisdom of the way things actually are. Definition of awakening, an act or moment of becoming suddenly aware of something. Coming into existence or awareness, an act of waking from sleep. Suddenly becoming aware of something sounds to me like right view, which is the first aspect of the Eightfold Path. Coming into right view of actually seeing things the way they are. Even the word Buddha actually means awaken, the awakened one. So anatta, which is understanding the inherent emptiness of all phenomena that we've been talking about, that, that no self. The Buddha thus taught that whether you're rich or poor, a child or an adult, even if you're an animal or anyone born in this world, there's nothing in this world that's lasting. Everything has to change in line with this condition. The truth of these conditions. If you try to fix them in a way that's not right, it won't respond at all. But there is a way to fix things. The Buddha taught us to contemplate this body and mind, to see that they aren't us, they aren't ours. They're just suppositions. And so he goes on to say that, that, that this is the way things are all over the world. Even the Buddha 
was this way. Even his enlightened disciples were this way. But they differed from us. In what way did they differ? They accepted this. They accepted the inherent emptiness. They accepted the fact that the fabrications of the body are this way by their very nature. They can't be any other way. So it's this deep acceptance that we're talking about. And how do we do that? I mean, as human beings, the one thing that we have, a, char- a capability that we have is, is, is this aspect of, of choosing. We're, we have this capability of choice. And because we have it, we can choose between wholesome and unwholesome states. And often it feels like there's no choice because of the layers and layers of behavioral conditioning that we have. It feels like there's no choice here, but there's always choice. It's just unconscious often and unexamined when we feel like there's no choice. But we can choose between wholesome and unwholesome states, and that's what this practice does. That's what I love about this practice is that it really shows us wholesome and unwholesome states. When we slow down enough, when we come into moment-to-moment awareness, we start to see the unwholesome decisions that we're making, the unwholesome states of mind that we have. And it gives us space and time to actually make a different choice. The Buddha says, whatever a person frequently ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever a person frequently ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. In thinking and acting the way we do, we are shaping ourselves in the process. This mindfulness practice has the capability of freeing us from these unwholesome states that we're talking about. Someone asked me today, well, what are the practices that we can actually understand this stuff that you guys are talking about? I said, mindfulness. Mindfulness is the practice. I want to read a story that um, I'm going to go a little beyond because I lost a little time. This is a beautiful story about a man named Jacob. It's in this book by Tara Brock. And um, Jacob was almost 70 and was in the midst stages of Alzheimer's. A clinical psychologist by profession and a meditator for more than 20 years, he was well aware that his faculties were deteriorating. On occasion, his mind would go totally blank. He would have no access to words for several minutes and become completely disoriented. He often forgot what he was doing and usually needed assistance with basic tasks, cutting his food, putting on clothes, bathing, getting from place to place. With his wife's help, Jacob attended a 10-day meditation retreat that Tara said that she was leading. A couple of days into the course, he had his first interview, you know, the interviews that we have, this meeting. And during our time together, Jacob and I talked about how things were going, both on the retreat and at home. His his attitude toward his disease was interested. His attitude toward his disease was interested, sad, grateful, even good-humored. Intrigued by his resilience, I asked him what allowed him to be so accepting. He responded, 
It doesn't feel like anything is wrong. It doesn't feel like anything is wrong. I feel grief and some fear about it all going, but it feels like real life. Then he told me about an experience he had at an earlier stage of this disease. This is really interesting. Jacob had occasionally given talks about Buddhism to local groups and had accepted an invitation to address a gathering of over a hundred meditation students. He arrived at the event feeling alert and eager to share the teachings he loved. Taking his seat in front of the hall, Jacob looked out at the expectant faces before him, and suddenly he didn't know what he was supposed to say or do. He didn't know where he was or why he was there. All he knew was that his heart was pounding furiously and his mind was spinning in confusion. Putting his palms together at his heart, Jacob started naming out loud what was happening. Afraid, embarrassed, confused, feeling like I'm failing, powerless, shaking, sense of dying, sinking, lost. For several more minutes he sat, his head slightly bowed, continuing to name his experience. As his body began to relax and his mind grew calmer, he also noted that out loud. At last Jacob lifted his head, looked slowly around at those gathered, and apologized. Many of the students were in tears. As one put it, no one has ever taught us like this. Your presence has been the deepest teaching. Rather than pushing away his experience and deepening his agitation, Jacob had the courage and training simply to name what he was aware of. And most significantly, to bow to his experience. In some fundamental way, he didn't create an adversary out of feelings of fear and confusion. He didn't make anything wrong. That's what this practice, all the practicing we've been doing, right? Now I'm aware of. Now I'm aware of. What a teaching. What a teaching that we're all getting this week together. I want to talk a little bit about a personal story in it. It has to do with someone very near and dear to me who's passed away is my brother. His name was Larry Mason, who was a special being, very, very special being on the planet. He came into this world um, with a body that totally underperformed. It was never, never served him well, but a mind and a spirit that was absolutely exquisite. And um, over his lifetime, his chronic illness just taught him in ways that I've never seen before. And I was a fortunate beneficiary of his wisdom that he gained over his life. He was my teacher. And his illness was his teacher. And so his illness was also my teacher. He actually understood dying as an essential part of life. 
that dying is is essential. And he he was a he was just a deep guy, <laughs> and he not only accepted um, his body and his life and the way it, it turned out, but he also spent many hours debating other people to get them to accept it. You know, especially me. Um, he really understood the transitory nature of all phenomena. He talked about it constantly, like, and he pointed out that everything's transitory. How can you hold on to anything? And he prepared us for his death, essentially. I always wish that Eugene would have met. I think that you all would have loved each other. That's just the whole way that you think. And he understood life as a process. And I think that I would say that he understood it as a verb more than a noun. His life was a verb. It was constantly moving. And he worked on my fixed views, really like chiseling them out. It almost felt like, you know how you have like a can of paint and you have that thing that kind of lifts up the edges? I felt like every year it's like lifting up the edges so that I can let go of my ways, natural ways of, of seeing the world until it just popped up into my having to understand. He really had a non-attachment in the deepest way. And I was there at the end, his last breath. And how he went was just phenomenal. He was in his 50s, I think he was about 54 when he died. And he enjoyed life. He really enjoyed it. And I told my colleagues this before, but when Larry died at the end, before he died, he, he was so unattached that he actually instructed us. He was in the hospital at the end, and he said, he called me Khan. Khan, when I die, just walk away. Just leave the body. I'll, I'm not there. And he was such a radical and anti-capitalist. He didn't believe in the dying business, and he didn't want us to spend any money on anything having to do with death. And so he says, walk away. Leave my body. And I was like, huh? <laughs> of course, that's not exactly what we did, but that was the kind of attitude he had. He didn't cling he let it go. And I know he wanted to live, but at the same time, he knew he was dying. So I, when I think about Jacob and Larry, it's this thinning of the self, you know, like the thinning, like we have thick selves and we pile on more and more as we get older and we have this thick self of who we think we are, of what we've created, this self. And this idea of thinning the self, of what does it mean to let go of layers of who I think I am, what this is all about. And I think of them as this being able to thin the self so it becomes more pliable. There's so much more to this Ajahn Chah story and how he sat with this woman dying. 
walk away from my body. Jacob, nothing is wrong. This is awakening. It's possible to awaken while we're here. And you have the good fortune to be in this room to know, to be exposed to the Dhamma. How fortunate is that? We all are really, really quite fortunate to have these lessons come down from thousands of years ago into this room right now with us. I'm going to end by reading a poem. It's a poem that, um, that I wrote, actually, when Larry died. It's called A Poem for Mr. Mason. We called him that. I don't know why. He had a remarkable disguise, if you didn't know any better. And you were prone to appearances, you might have used the word weak in speaking of him. Or had you not spent hour upon hour watching day turn into night and back into day again, sitting on that sprawling, elevated block he called a bed, dramatically discussing the historical and political and spiritual ramifications of everything, you might have thought of his life as simple. Or if you had never seen his ability to walk softly through one diagnosis after another, one medical procedure upon the other, you might have thought of his life as complicated. Yeah, he had a remarkable disguise, because if you were only prone to appearance and and had not felt the richness of his passion, or the heat of his desire, to ride with you to the destinations of your imagination, joyfully advising on the best course to take, seeing and believing in you oftentimes more than you could in yourself. You might have felt sorry for him, commenting, poor guy, with a shake of your head. If you didn't know any better, you might have thought, that his 110-pound frame was all there was to it. But if your life had the good fortune to experience beyond the frail disguise, you'd laugh at such a thought. Time and time again, you glowed in the kindness of his eyes. You received from him the benevolence of his heart. You learned from the nature of his questioning. You absorbed from the wisdom of his life, and you scowled at the stubbornness of his ways. There's no doubt his miniature body container was deceiving, but now I understand the mystery of how, in a nanosecond, a single atom can explode, permanently changing the world forever.
Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.